Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now here are three guys who are actually under the illusion that woodworking is cool. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. Hey, hey, hey. I was watching Fat Albert recently and it's in my mind. Uh, today's, uh, let's see, February 24th, 2014. It's episode 171. And on today's show, David wants to cut down a pro on pro bono work. Rusty wants our thoughts on wood acclimation. Alex wants to return some of his wood. Nate wants to know what he should do during the time away from the shop. Tom's trying to minimize noise transmission in his basement shop, and Matt needs an inexpensive solution for reinforced miters. But before we get to all that, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by Festool. Not just tools, but an entire system of saws, sanders, dust extraction, and more. All designed to work together for cleaner, faster, and more precise results. See the latest at FestoolUSA.com. All righty. Uh, you know, right off at the, the top here, I'd like to mention something about our recurring donations. I didn't mention this to you guys ahead of time. So surprise, we're going to talk yeah, about oh, it. Yeah. Oh, I love surprises. I know you do. Woo-hoo. We're going to retire early now. Thank you, generous donator. That that we are. Uh, we usually mention it at the end of the show, but I want to mention it at the beginning. And we really appreciate everybody who helps us out with a recurring donation. Uh, we do have a little widget there on the side of the website at woodtalkshow.com. And you could sign up for uh, like, you know, small amounts, $2, $5, whatever you're comfortable with. And you could even do a one-time donation. And uh, it really, really helps support the things that we do here. We're always trying to improve the show uh, in quality. Well, not necessarily the content of the show. We're, we're, you know, we're just Matt, Mark, and Shannon. There's only so much we can do about that. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> but as far as the technical aspects of the show, you know, live streaming, uh, getting the files so that they download quickly and dependably for you. And in the future, a new website. So there's a little, uh, a little bomb I'm dropping for you so that we'll have a dedicated place for all this wood talk stuff. And, uh, hopefully it'll help to develop a little more sense of community. Uh, but all this stuff costs money to do. And it would be nice if, uh, if this was a self-supporting uh, side hobby of what we do. Uh, so every time someone gives us a recurring donation or a one-time donation, that really does help out. And I want to say thank you to everyone who's done that in the past and who plans on doing it in the future. Oh, I want to say thank you too. Can I say it? Go for it. Okay. Hey, thanks. <laughs> thanks. I want to know if you got one of those dot triple X domains for the new Wood Talk site. I don't know, but now that you mention it, I should because people might accidentally be trying to go there thinking uh, this is logical for Wood Talk to to be located at that triple uh, X domain. So maybe we should get it. There you smart, go. Makes, smart thinking. Makes sense to me. All right, let's move into what's on the bench. Uh, I wish I could get this live stream going. So sorry for folks who usually listen live, but uh, it's not cooperating. All right, what's on the bench? I just finished that Blacker House chair little thing that I've been working on. Oh, I thought it was a Black and Decker house black and, chair. Black and Decker like, house. Yeah. <laughs> what would that look like? It would be black and orange, right? I yeah, think. and it would probably be able to fold up. You could also double it as some sort of vice or a uh, holding table. That's true, and it would probably take uh, take batteries. That'll burn. I was going to say there'd have to be like twenty D cell batteries in <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, and um, I bet some bits would come with it too. Yes, and a laser. Exactly, yeah. Ooh, have a laser. And it would only be nineteen ninety nine. Mm. <laughs> the best part about it uh but yeah i did finally finish up the blacker house chair i uh put my nose to the grindstone and, and got all those ebony plugs in place and man what a what a what a chair what a piece of work that thing is and uh put a lacquer coat on it and man it just looks gorgeous and that's uh Sapili wood i i was thinking about doing a little bit of a dye stain which i usually do on green and green pieces and i decided you know what i think with a little finish on this this is going to be dark enough i don't know that i need to push it any further and i'm really happy i did it because the natural look with just a clear coat is a really beautiful contrast with the ebony mm-hmm. and uh, overall uh this thing just sings i am really happy with it so uh, the only thing left to do is the seat and uh, I've been contemplating whether I even want to bother trying it. I don't, I don't know a dang thing about upholstery. So I'm like, I want this to look good. Like I wanted the, <clears throat> excuse me, the seat to be at least as good as the, the quality of the woodwork. <laughs> you know, I don't, like, like I don't want the leather all loose and hanging off of the thing and staples being visible from the top. Um, so I found a local place that does upholstery and I'm going to price it out there and uh, see if we can't work something out. I can't imagine it's going to be too much. It's just a little drop in seat. Um, so hopefully that'll come out really nice. And then I'll be, I'll have this beautiful new chair that I could sit in. 
Well, if you did go so far as to try it yourself, this is what you could do. I, I highly recommend this because I do this with anything that I want to kind of try to hide is I set stuff all over the top of it. So if the seat <laughs> didn't come out very well, just, you know, it's going to be in the office space and you're trying to keep Mateo from maybe climbing all over it. Set a lot of stuff in it. It's <laughs> yeah. now a storage area. <laughs> well, the the funny thing was, speaking of Mateo, um, he was in the shop with me the other day, and I had just put on the first coat of lacquer, so it was in uh, drying. Well, it was dry for a couple of hours, but still one one fresh coat on there. And what's the first thing he does? It's like you know, like a, a moth to one of those lights. He just flies right to it, and he steps on the the cross rail and starts climbing up on it. And I'm like, no, buddy, no, 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 no. So, uh, so that told me that, yeah, my decision to put this thing in the back room so no one can see it, and especially he can't see it for like at least five or six more years, is probably the way to go with something like this. And say that inlay in the back splat, that's meant to be dug out, right? <laughs> yes. I was just thinking that too. It's meant to have teeth marks on all sides. Uh, These just... ebony plugs look like Legos. They should come out. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so so it's it's super exciting. And, and Shannon, you were one of the folks on Facebook who who was like, yeah, you know, really, now now what? You know, you've, you've right. done this thing. What What's next? And uh, the cool thing about it is it's like, yeah, I built it, but I... I and that, that's very satisfying. You know, it definitely is a satisfying feeling. This was one of my big uh, projects, bucket list projects that I said I wanted to do. But I started thinking about, okay, what's next? And the, the reality is, although I built this, it kind of, you know, when you build stuff from plans, it's not quite the same thing as build, building something that you designed. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a very different feeling, a, a, a different level of satisfaction, I think, when you have not only uh, built it, but also designed it yourself. So this to me is a copy. Reproductions are great. I love it. There's a, a, a technical challenge to it, but it's not something that ever really satisfied my sense for for flexing you know, some design muscles. So, so while this was great and it was certainly an accomplishment, it doesn't feel quite as big of an accomplishment as as it would if I built like design the chair myself which clearly I would never be able to do but someday in the future I might be able to, to design a fairly complex chair and then also have the skill to execute build it and bring it to life so I think when 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 we think about what's next after you build one of your bucket list projects that to me that might be the next thing is to to get better at design so that I can make my own creation that is somewhat impressive at least <laughs> by my standards impressive right. Well, um, isn't that part of the reason sometimes we may suggest to people that have kind of that that concern, like maybe they're not woodworker woodworker enough because they're not designing their own projects. And oftentimes it is like one of those things, well, you need to learn some basics and there's nothing yeah. wrong with going with a plan. And so now that you've got a feel for this, uh, I have a, I, I'm very confident to say that you probably have a idea of what you can and can't do yeah. when it comes to the actual joinery itself. So it's a very important lesson. Like if you were right. going to go into chair building as just a thing uh, that you wanted to focus on, seeing this go together makes like 95% of the chairs out there look easy. <laughs> right. That's a, that's a good point. You know, so so doing that, if you're going to take a class like this and you're going to do it in a sort of compressed time frame and space, uh, that's probably the kind of project you want to pick, something that is insanely complex so that once you do look at these other projects, you really can fairly easily look at it and reverse engineer the way that it was put together, at least come close to it. And that's kind of what the whole project did for me. It just ripped the veil off of this whole chair building process. And and frankly, that's the thing I'm most thankful for that made it worth my time and money to go out there and do it is it kind of opened up a different world of of furniture making for me uh, that hopefully I could explore a little bit in the future. Nice. So. Thank you, William. Thank you for putting that into Mark's head. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so he doesn't. So he doesn't stop talking about chairs for the next five years. Yes. Thank you for giving him the confidence <laughs> that we all want to beat out of him now. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. All right, Shannon. How about you? What's up? Well, I had a um, a request from a family member to build a little desk clock that I built. I want to say more than ten years ago. This is back when I was kind of doing craft show type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was really interesting uh, because. That was kind of a different life for me. You know, I was in the, the full-on power tool world, building small little projects and things and doing kind of mass production for these craft shows. So I was like, okay, yeah, I can build one of those. And then I, I you know, walked down to my shop and I looked around and I go, okay, previously I did it this way and I used that machine, which I no longer have. And I used that machine, which I no longer have. So it was <laughs> like, okay. So it started out as, yeah, sure, I'll make another one of those. And now it's like, cool. Yeah, I'll make another one of those. And it just got me thinking about revisiting like really old projects 
and how do I build them differently now or how would I build them differently now? Sure. And I'm having a lot of fun with this. It's It was from a, a, a Wood Magazine plan. In fact, I, I've talked to the guys over at Wood and they're going to go ahead and provide the plan for free that I'll attach to the blog post when I, I do a video on this. Cool. Um, it's just, it's a veneer. It's basically a, a bent laminate clock. Um, really cool little design. But before, you know, I made the I made the the forms for it and everything, and I cut it out on the bandsaw, and I cut all the veneers on the table saw, and cut the angles on the table saw, and it's just kind of neat to look at it now and how I would attack it entirely from a hand tool perspective, and like not hesitate at all. So part of it is like affirmation for me that I did the right thing by mm-hmm. selling some of my power tools, um, and that I, in, for me personally, I'm not missing out on anything it's not like i can't do things now so right. i don't know it's kind of neat so it's got me thinking about some of these things that i built a long time ago and possibly nope. trying them again I, are any of these things just i i, I don't think you you mentioned like none of these things were recorded previously at all right Back oh no the, no no this is right. all did, like did you blog about them at all 2004 okay. and uh you know i what i started the renaissance woodworker in 2008 right so okay uh, yeah, I mean, they're they're in the. I mean, certainly, I've got some stuff right around that time period that I didn't record. But uh, no, I mean, I, I did a lot of box making. I made a lot of like serving trays. I used to do um, go out and find cool like ceramic tiles or stones or things like that and inlay it into a tray with like dovetailed sides and everything. And that was like in box joints, good old box joints, like the beginner woodworker's joint of choice. <laughs> I still um, haven't done one yet. <laughs> you've got that router table, you can make box joints. Now I don't ever use box joints. I don't know what it is about that joint, but um, I, that's the one thing, this serving tray, because I actually have some granite tiles, these really kind of one-off, I don't know if you call them handmade, but they're they're one-off tiles that I got in an antique store up in Maine a couple of years ago. They've been sitting in a drawer in my shop thinking one day I'll do something with it. And I'm just thinking, how cool would it be to make another one of those trays? And how would I approach it now without power um and how would i change materials like before i used plywood for the the tray bottom and inlaid in using a router and everything would i use plywood again and if i did how would i inlay so i'm i'm hoping i think part of it is is my desire to kind of knock out a few little little projects because i'm coming off of i'm finishing up this pedestal table um shaker hancock shaker table right now I just built a bunch of lathes prior to that. I've been doing kind of some larger scale things, and I just want to kind of decompress a little bit with some quick weekend type projects. So sure. that's kind of where it's coming yeah. from. Very cool. Nice. Yeah. Sweet. What well, about you, Matt? For me, of course, we uh, finally wrapped up the whole thing with Aiden's bed. I know I mentioned that last time, and we decided we're going to do uh, the die, which I mentioned last time. So I have been going through more of the prep work right now. And by prep work, I mean taking the bed apart and starting to sand the pieces, get everything ready for it. And I, at this point, my shop is completely filled with all the broken down pieces for the bed, which is something like, wow, my shop went from being usable to I can almost (laughs) squeeze between these two areas. Nice. So, yeah, I I think the big thing right now is I just need to, I got to slow myself down because I just so desperately want to get through this that I'm like, I got to remind myself, all right, no, for, because this is a water-based dye, I probably should do something like, I don't know, raise the grain because it would be <laughs> nice to maybe do this the right way. So yeah. I'm getting myself all prepared to take the actual steps that you are required for a decent finish, which is sometimes an unusual thing in the Vanderlust workshop, to be quite honest with you. Do you usually strain with that part of the project where, where the building is done, now it's time to finish, and you just just have to fight the urge to rush through it? Yes. Oh, it's Absolutely. so, so hard yeah. not to do. I mean, I, 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 we still have a couple of projects down here that are, are I'm taking on the Shannon finish. In other words, they're just sitting in the corner unfinished. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Little elbow grease. That's it. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like one of those. Oh, man, I just wish somebody in my family would take an interest in finishing and nobody does. So, yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's so painful not to not to rush myself through it. But yeah. that's I, I, I really want this to turn out nicely. And, and again, it's like one of those step back, breathe and let's start doing things the right way. Yeah, it's almost it's almost the second half of the project, you know, I mean, if mm-hmm. I, I had a moment like that with this chair where I had put on a good couple coats of lacquer and it was super rough. Of course, it's going to be rough at that point. 
and sanding this thing down with all its little nooks and crannies and little inside angles and stuff like that. I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to rush through this. This is my only goal for the next few hours as I'm in the shop. I just want to take my time, put on some music and slowly but surely sand this thing to perfection. Because if I if I don't, I'm totally going to regret it forever. And, mm. and if I do, it's a couple hours invested and the results are that much better. You know, That, that was exactly what I was doing the other day. I was sanding and I got to that point where I'm like, I just I just need to finish this one part up. And I found myself starting to rush the sander. And then as mm. I'm looking back, I can see the swirl marks. I yeah. can see that they're not yeah. leaving the same exact oh, marks. So I'm like, okay, go back. Just yeah. relax. If necessary, take a small break. Come back. But do this the right way. So, yeah, so far, so good. Cool. Well, I think the I've payoff people- is when you get done – and you did it right, it looks so awesome. But more importantly, it feels awesome. That's right. I'm you glad know, you said that. Well-applied finish. Yep. That's my, my big thing is I have a number of projects uh, that thankfully aren't in this house. There's someplace else. But that's one of those things. I almost don't want people to touch them. And I have this fear <laughs> of like people, like even when they're going through with like a, like a little dust broom or something, you know, like a little dust brush and they, they go to clean it off, like things are getting stuck to the finish because it's like, you know, so textured practically <laughs> so that's like one of those all right i just want to be able to touch it and go oh that's nice dude that it's <laughs> hilarious there are times when i build something and i know i've got like i nailed the finish like the humidor for instance and and there are times where i'm real hesitant like i watch someone interact with the project i made and i'm like oh, i hope they don't rub their finger right there <laughs> right. you know and, but with this one i'm like go ahead touch it Go ahead. See what happens. Go touch it. You know, the, the, one, the one thing I was thinking about with the texture is I keep thinking about the actual platform that the mattress is going to go on. And I keep telling myself, well, maybe if you leave that one a little rough, because I see me going to do the Superman and that mattress will fly yeah. right off the backside. Yeah, get a little grip on there. It might not hurt things. Right. So, but the other uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is coming up in the I, Shannon had the opportunity to be in Wood Magazine and I wanted to be too. So I got a hold of them and said, <laughs> Shannon's in it. I want to be in it. Seriously, if you publish that guy, come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, something like that. Oh, you saw, did I accidentally uh, include you on the emails? Well, I thought, didn't uh, it start with, don't you know who I am? Well, that one, <laughs> no, actually, that's the pizza guy. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> so coming up in the May 2014 issue of Wood Magazine, you get to see my smiling face looking right back at you. Very nice. cool, man. Congrats. And by well, the way, you. I think we should mention your recent interview on Modern Woodworkers Association. No, that's okay if we don't mention that. No, no, I feel no. so sad for those guys. It's good, dude. <laughs> I, I had so much fun listening to you recount really the good. tale of how we met and like <laughs> and how we started Wood Talk and then brought Shannon into it. It was a lot of fun. It, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed it and I kept thinking, wait, did that actually happen or was I drunk? <laughs> no, it was really good. So if you get a Someday chance. Someday it's going to make a really good VH1 behind the behind the woodwork special. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, yeah, there we go. If you, if you get a chance, folks, go to mon, modernwoodworkersassociation.com. Those are by a couple of our really good friends uh, that run the whole thing and do the podcast and listen to episode, well, listen to all the episodes, but catch the, the latest one, episode 47 featuring Matt Vanderlist, a.k.a. The Podfather, and uh, just a great interview all around, and you'll get to hear the history of Wood Talk. If you don't already know it, that's a, a great place to hear a good synopsis of it. There yeah, you and go. then when Absolutely. you're done with that, go listen to the episode with Tom Fidgen, because that guy's just cool. I missed, I missed that one. I, I think that one. was the one right before mine, and I'm thinking, why? Why would you do that to me? <laughs> Tom, Tom's the kind of cool that we all secretly want to be. Yes. And he is that. Yeah. yeah. Nice. He's just a cool dude. Cool. All right. Well, let's get into what's new. We've got a couple of things to share with you here. I've got an article that uh, my buddy Gary Katz, and I don't know if you know who Gary Katz is, but he is like interior carpentry extraordinaire dude. And he put up a article and video on baseboards and it's all about the miters. And if you've ever done a baseboard project and been frustrated by it, this is definitely something you want to read. I mean, the guy knows what he's talking about and this is a very comprehensive instructional sort of uh, article, like I said, an accompanying video that, that goes through it. So if you're doing baseboards or at really any interior carpentry, because once you understand uh, inside corners, outside corners, coping, excuse me, all that stuff is very, very handy, especially if you're doing a lot of work around the house. So uh, put the link in the show notes for that. But it's at thisiscarpentry.com, which is Gary's content website. And uh, it's a really great article. So you should uh, definitely check it out. All right. I've got the second one here too. This is uh, sent in by Kyle, Textwood. He says, check out this new plywood, in quotes, uh, used in the boating industry. It's called Alpi wood or Alpi wood. 
Uh, Alpi wood. wood. The plies are arranged to look like wood grain and it starts uh, jump to about 150 in the video if you're uh, listening along and watching. So I, I did take a look at this. The cool thing is what they're doing is orienting the sheets that make up the vin- normally that would make up a piece of plywood, right? You would just have the, the face veneers on the outside and um, uh, plywoods that are at uh, intersecting angles, 90 degrees to one another. And that's what makes plywood. Well, this is plywood where everything is oriented the same way. And then what they do is once they have this big block glued together, then they cut it on the bias. So what actually winds up happening is you have a grain direction to this that makes this stuff look to the casual observer, look like solid wood. Frankly, to woodworkers, if you looked at this, you would just think it was an incredibly clean grained solid wood. And in fact, it is a layup of multiple sheets of very thin veneer. So the idea is, although it like kind of will work and look like solid wood, is that it's actually much more stable, resists movement, resists bending, and kind of acts more like plywood, but with the joys of working with the sheet good. So kind of interesting. Now, um, Shannon, do you have any perspective on availability of stuff like this and cost? It's extraordinarily expensive. <laughs> That's what I thought. Uh, <laughs> yes. The amount of work uh, to make well, this. A lot of a lot of what we do are probably our largest customer set at the yard I work for is boat building. Uh-huh. Um, because we're, if not the largest, one of the largest importers of teak in this country. So we obviously just play a lot in that space. We also do a lot of marine grade plywood. <clears throat> in fact, we're number one in Google for that term. And the Alpi Wood or the Alpi Company is where this comes from. They produce a lot of different engineered type products. It's really not that new. Uh, it's been around for a while, but um, they have they, they've become popular recently because they can trace all their stuff back, like environmentally. They're really, really good on the certification and traceability side of things. Mm-hmm. So as um, FSC becomes more important in specs, but less easy to get because it's so difficult to get FSC stuff. People look for alternatives and engineered products come up a lot. So um, it is, I wish I had a price sheet in front of me. We've we've brought it in a couple times for a couple of customers, guys that make like $150 million yachts Mm -hmm. um, at the, at the minimum, (laughs) And uh, you're talking orders of magnitude more expensive yeah. than a regular sheet of marine grade Akume plywood, which can run 160 to 190 dollars a sheet for three quarter stuff. The Hello. one inch stuff is closer to 200 dollars a sheet. So you can get into the thousands um, on stuff like this. So you're it's, just super super high end. I mean, yeah. I mean, wow. it, it obviously depends upon the species you use. It depends upon how certified it is and how sustainable it is. I mean, they can do a custom layup of just about anything you want. Yeah. Um, but the one thing is, is it's, it's, if I remember correctly, I don't know the exact numbers, but it is certainly heavier mm-hmm. because there's a much higher volume of glue in there. Yeah, of course. I don't think it's CARB-2 compliant. So if you're in California, uh, California Air Resource Bureau, I think is what CARB stands for. CARB-2 compliance um, eliminates formaldehyde and stuff like that. So the same reason you can't buy like oil-based paints or anything with lead in California, you can't buy a lot of plywood products out there because it's not CARB-2 compliant. So this is one of those ones that still is new enough that people haven't really haven't really accepted it yet, I guess. Yeah, so yeah. Oh, it's very still cool. very expensive because it's not about volume for them. It's almost per sheet. Right. Yeah. Very, very awesome stuff. Watch the video. Yeah. We'll have that link there for you. And uh, Shannon, you want to get the last one here? Sure. This is a, a YouTube video. Let's see. Sent in by Phil. Um, it's a, as he says, add this one to the ultimate workbench onslaught. This is a guy that um, his YouTube channel is much more kind of, site carpentry and not so much, I don't want to say not fine woodworking, but not really um, your typical woodworker type YouTube site. He's definitely a pro. And it's it's interesting because he builds a workbench that's very modular. So mm-hmm. you can kind of pull it out of the back of the truck and set it up on site. And it's got like bars to hang your table saw on and like a drop-in router table and everything. It's just a very cool modular design. And I actually think it's 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 needed. Because with the the workbench glut that we see on our little world lately, it's so what'd you call me? Sl- glut. Oh, oh, workbench oh. glut. Jeez, it it's so um, slanted towards hand tools, <laughs> and this is definitely a power tool workbench. Yeah. Um, 
And, it, you know, everyone knows I'm a hand tool fanatic, but I actually it really enjoyed this because it's like, you know, finally something to swing the pendulum back the other way because there's all these, you know, like dedicated power tool guys, you know, building a Nicholson workbench. It's like, yeah. well, it doesn't really make sense. Well, and it's also so. like set up to incorporate a job site table saw. You know, so instead of like, again, that's the other part of what's what happens with a lot of us is we focus on these big, you know, cabinet saws and a lot of people just don't have them and don't have the space. So even though this is kind of meant for portability and that kind of I don't know if this is something you drag to a job site, but it definitely has a lot more portable aspects to it. And you could take it to a job site. You've got to really consider the the large percentage of people that have those uh, more portable saws and how can you incorporate it into something that gives you a little bit more cabinet functionality. Although I did find it funny because there's a, a scene where right after he sets it up and gets it all set up, he climbs on top and jumps up and down on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and in our world where we're so used to seeing rubos and things like that, you know, I actually looked at it and go, that doesn't look very strong because it like it's flexes sa- it all over a the place bit. as he jumps on it. I thought the same and, thing. You know, yeah. when you put yourself in the perspective of, of his audience, they're probably like, wow, look how strong that is. And I'm like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that thing flexing. I parked you know? my car on top of my bench. You now can drive, you know, a monster truck over my workbench and it won't flex. So that's <laughs> it's cheap. Well, then this is, uh, like you said, I think it's needed. And I believe his original design was insanely popular. And this is the replacement for that. I think he even said that he's discontinuing or doing away with the original uh, version one of his bench. And this is now version two and version one will no longer be available. So um, it definitely looks like something most people should be capable of uh, knocking together in a weekend. Yeah, he sells the plans too if if you want it. Oh, and the other thing, I just wish he would take the microphone out of his neck. (laughs) <laughs> did you notice like through uh, every time he's talking it's i mean he's got a good speaking voice but you hear <laughs> as basically the uh the little wind deflector foam thing is rubbing against the inside of his his the little his little neck divot his little neck hole what do you call that thing neck divot <laughs> what do you call that little neck divot you know what I'm talking i think about. we're gonna call it the neck divot <laughs> yeah, that works for me for right now <laughs> it's uh i usually yeah. just have the beard like constantly rustling over it <laughs> Uh, oh, you got leaves blowing through your shop. Oh. Yep, that's just my hairy beard. <laughs> All right, let's move into kickback. We've got a couple of items to share with you from the community. The first one here is from Jared. He says, in the last episode, you guys talked about home center lumber. I thought it might be worth mentioning while all the points you guys touched on were valid and for the most part true. Uh, I want to know what wasn't true. <laughs> you know, there was that says, one thing. Someone says, for the most part, what what was wrong? I'm curious. What did Shannon say that was wrong? Because <laughs> seriously, yeah, you know it's another has one to be of mine. Sh- so, <laughs> <laughs> what Shannon do this time? Uh, he says, I as well as a few other guys I know scored with some nice gems from the home center. I actually made it a point, make it a point to stop by every couple of months and scour the hardwood piles. On almost every occasion, I walk away with at least a few board feet of an incredibly curly maple. In most cases, I wouldn't pay $6 a board foot for maple, but when it's super curly and S4S, I could deal with the price. Your luck will probably vary based on your location, but just something to think about. Uh, Also wanted to note, I was perusing the Bell Forest website today and noticed that there is a tree called Swamp Ash. Ha ha, Swamp (laughs) Ash. I'll let you chew on that for a while. No, no, no. I, I don't need to <laughs> chew on anything called Swamp Ash. I have to deal enough with it. That's why we had opened the windows this weekend in the Vanderlust bedroom. Is that Swamp Ash in here? Yes, it is. Uh, all right. Uh, Matt, you want to get the next one? All right. This comes from our good friend Tom Buell, and he says, when talking about difficulty getting three-quarter inch working material out of three-quarter inch off-the-shelf material, you can also remind people that as woodworkers slash designers, we should not feel stuck with three-quarter inch thickness as some magic number. Mm. Some elements want to be greater than three-quarters of an inch, while others would be improved by maybe being half or five-eighths or eleven-sixteenths inch. So this change might require adjusting your plan as if we used plans like stupid robots. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, no, what did, did we just talk about plans a couple minutes ago? Uh, I think maybe we, we should edit that last part out. Yeah, we didn't mention them. <laughs> Before anybody gets all up in arms about this, just check out Tom's work. <laughs> he knows of what he speaks. He yes. certainly does. Did you see his woven uh, little stool yeah, chair? His, his, Danish yeah, board his thing. prototype thing that he made looks beautiful. Yeah, he's becoming one of those people like Kerry Holtman that I just love to hate. You love yeah. to hate him. You <laughs> he's lo- just like, oh, I'm going to try this, and he like executes it perfectly. Yeah, you like, love you him. Suck. You love him, but you just want to smack him around a little bit. Yeah, a, a exactly. friendly smack. Screw up! Come on, <laughs> just once. All right, let's move into our voicemail. 
Got a couple good ones here. Uh, should have probably let you guys know about these because I'm going to send this question to one of you. But, oh, uh, good. Put you on the spot here. This one is from Chris. <laughs> He's got a question about the Veritas Jackrabbit plane being used as a shooting plane. Hey, guys. This is Chris Purnell from Woodland Park, Colorado. Big fan. I've listened to the show about three times a piece. Um, my question is this. I'm thinking about buying a uh, Veritas rabbiting plane. Uh, it's the rabbit um, or jackrabbit plane. Um, I'm kind of thinking about using the plane to um, do rabbits. Spit it uh, out, Chris. Move the board <laughs> and also Finish use the it for a shooting plane. What I was thinking about doing is taking one blade and grinding off a corner of it to where I can run it along the shooting board. Um, just wondering if that uh, um, will work or not. Um, thanks. I uh, love the show. Hope to uh, meet you guys soon. Bye-bye. Cool. Thanks now, for the question. I'd Chris. like to point out that Chris is actually a student of mine at the Matt School of Broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was the Matt School of Procrastination. There's that one too, but I haven't gotten around to putting a website <laughs> up for it yet. Da, da, da. Nice. Nicely he's done. The, he's the actor guy, right? Chris <laughs> Parnell? Yes, he's, he's the comedian. Yeah, comedian from uh, SNL, right? Um, yeah. Hey, uh, who wants to take this one? Because I don't. It. Okay. I'll take it. <laughs> Go for it. Um, and you'll like it. There is a, a much easier solution, Chris, uh, for this. I think grinding, I, I like the idea that you're you're thinking about, just the ingenuity of kind of grinding that radius away, but I think you'll end up regretting it later because it essentially defeats the purpose of having a plane in which the blade runs all the way to the edge. Because mm-hmm. um, now, yes, it runs to one edge on the other side, but the idea is now you can only run in that one direction. Um you know, you need you can only work up to a corner on that you know right hand side or left hand side of the of the blade, depending on how you do it. And I think you will end up regretting that. Now, I do realize you said buy a different blade um, to do this, but the solution and uh, Derek Cohen down in Australia always has these like incredibly uh, thorough blog posts and reviews that he does. And he got a hand he got his hands on this Jackrabbit plane a while ago. And basically walked through everything that it can do. So if you're thinking about this plane, that's a good post to look at. And we'll include a link to it. But he also has a shooting solution there, which not only will it make it shoot well, but I think it makes it shoot even better because it involves creating an actual guided shoot where you've taken a board and essentially bolted it to one side. And the plane comes with little holes that you can already run a bolt through Hmm. or actually they're threaded, um, I think. On the plane itself, they're threaded, and uh, Derek even gives you the pitch of the thread that you just buy a bolt and thread it in there. So now that fence that you created actually goes down on your shooting board, and then you put a little guide on the outboard side of that that actually traps that little fence in place. Um, we've we've seen this a lot now with the um, the big shooting shooting planes. We saw them at WIA on the um, Tico Votes Super Shoot, where now it rides in a track, essentially. And the blade, the plane itself can't move out or in. It can only move linearly. Linearly? Literally. Literally. I loved her in that one movie. Yeah, (laughs) she's beautiful. good. So you're not having to grind anything. You're not having to get a separate blade. You're just grabbing a piece of scrap wood and you're using the holes that are already in the plane itself that are tapped and you just screw it in place, put that little... Uh, you don't have to put the guide on your shooting board, but since you've got this nice wide reference surface, it it it's awesome, by the way. Having used a couple of those super shoots that have that outboard guide on it, it just it makes it kind of idiot-proof. And then you can take that off when you're done and use it as a jackrabbit plane from there. So uh, check out the link. It's Derek Cohen's site is in thewoodshop.com. There's always all kinds of really good stuff there. Cool. All right, got another question here from Bob concerning safety. And our good friend, the internet. <laughs> hey guys, it's Bob in Tampa Bay. Got a question for you. Have do you think over the years that comments from what some people call uh, a little disparagingly the YouTube safety patrol have made you more safety conscious in the shop? Thanks. Great show. Have a good day. 
I think it's a really cool question. Thanks for that, Bob. Um, you know, interestingly enough, I don't know that necessarily the YouTube safety patrol is really any different than the forum safety patrol and probably the news group safety patrol that existed before that. Um, right. There's always a safety patrol when people are viewing things from and the uh, editor's mailbag for the magazine. Exactly. Yeah. When you're sort of in a spectator position, it's very easy to backseat drive somebody and make those comments. So I think it's something that people have been dealing with for a long time. Uh, but for us personally, I could say for me, yes, it has improved my safety because anytime I have that camera running, I know that I need to just make sure that I don't get that sort of feedback like, oh, you should have done this or, oh, the the little uh, dealies hanging from your hoodie are too long. It's going to get caught in a saw and I have to stop doing that or like you're wearing a ring, things like that. So it has made a difference because... Uh, I mean, maybe for the wrong reason, because I just don't want to get feedback like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? So <laughs> yes. I have actually done things to make things safer so that my videos are cleaner in that regard. So there are fewer things that someone can say, aha, and catch you on because the internet is great at that. Um, so for no reason but that, I would say, yeah, I actually am a lot safer thanks to internet feedback. Uh, Matt, what about you? I'm very, very much a similar situation. I've become more conscious of it. Uh, because of the fact that the camera is on. Uh, occasionally, there there are a few, I think, people go a little bit overboard. But at the same time, there's probably a good reason why they're going overboard. Hopefully, it's not something that's happened directly to them. Perhaps yeah. you always hear the story about a family member. I mean, I've got a great one about my grandfather. So, yes and, and no. Personally, it, it <laughs> has just to stop the noise. Well, Shannon, being in the hand tool world where things are generally considered safer for the most part, um, do you tend to see a lot of the safety feedback in your videos? You know, it's interesting. I see very little. Um, and it may be that, um, I think I'm pretty safe when I work because I have, I've never had a, a real serious, the most I've ever had is a couple of stitches and that was from a handsaw, uh, which was really startling because I think a lot of people think handsaws are really safe, you know? When yeah. it starts I remember cutting, that. you stop. Hey, um, if it cuts wood, it can cut your skin, so. <laughs> right. But uh, it's surprising how quickly it will cut through skin. Mm -hmm. You know, one half a stroke and you're like, dope, and now <laughs> yeah. I had three stitches in my hand. Yep. That's the worst that it's been. But I have nicked myself with chisels so many times mm -hmm. that I have just adopted, um, I, I hope, I think, relatively safe uh, practices. Yeah. But I also don't think, I think the conception or rather misconception is that they are a lot safer so they don't have to worry about it as much. Um, yeah. So well, I think that they're... God help me for saying this, but I think we probably could stand a bit more safety police in the hand tool world. <laughs> well, I think the thing with the hand tool, the false sense of security comes from the fact that when you do have an injury, it's usually not life-threatening or right. necessarily limb-severing. And yeah. I, with power tools, when things go wrong, that's the level of crap going down that you can actually confront with power tools. I think it's a, the, 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 the bar is a little higher in terms of and, what can go and wrong. There literally is crap going down when it happens. Some, sometimes <laughs> it can be. Yeah. Ask yes. Matt I, when he uh, let the router dance on his palm if, uh, if he dropped a little one in his shorts. Well, let me tell you something. First, I, uh, I said it <laughs> and then I did it. <laughs> Oops. Um, all right. Let's jump into our emails. First one here is from David. He says, I've been woodworking since I was a teenager and have evolved from DIY projects to actual usable functional furniture. I really enjoy making the stuff, refining my skills and creating things. But I've come into a season of expected projects, either from family members wanting me to build them something or family members volunteering my time. Any ideas as to how to <laughs> shake the pro bono work and actually start making a few bucks for my work? Not looking to make a living, just want to subsidize my new uh, tool crave. Uh, thanks. That's a great question, it. right? It is. Volunteering my time. You need new family members. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me, okay. So this is a very personal thing because what this comes down to is personal relationships. I don't necessarily know that there's good, solid, like professional advice here because you're talking about how do you deal with your family members who want to monopolize your shop time? So the best I think I can do is give my own experience and tell you how I handle it. I say no. And that's it. No, actually what happens is it, it, with family at Start this with point. Start an invoice. Yeah. I mean, it and then really, I see all the pictures on Facebook of our family reunion and I'm like, why was I not, why was invited? I not invited to that? Yeah. It really does come down to saying no and being a little more consistent about it because I, 
I kind of had to do a little bit of that where you kind of train your family to think that, you know, that you're available to do this work at any time, which really, if you don't want that to be the case, you have to change it. And it's not that you don't want to do work for your family, but maybe it should just be a special occasion when David is making something for so-and-so in the family. It should be a big deal. And if it's coming around too often, you might have to just start turning this stuff down and explaining to them that you're really hoping to fund your hobby by selling your work and you don't want to have to charge them. So in order to do that, you're going to have to take on a few paying jobs here and there. And that's going to get in the way of you doing things for other people. So I think if you're just level with them and explain the situation, I can't imagine any family members are going to really get mad at you for it. Um, the other thing with people promising out that actually does happen to me. Nicole did it recently where uh, friends of ours got married and she told them that I would build them a cutting board. And I just don't have the time right now to, I mean, it sounds silly. It's just a, an end grain cutting board, but those can take some time and, and I'm just not mentally in the mood to do it. And I've got a lot of work to do. So you know what I did? I procrastinated and I kept waiting and waiting and waiting. And she eventually just bought them something. I was just going to say. <laughs> so there is I a factor that she was going to say she grabbed yours. And <laughs> gave it, to them. it smells <laughs> like onions, but uh, you know, that's just the way the finish smells. Um, yeah. It, it's something that I procrastinated long enough that she just got frustrated and then said, screw it. I'm buying something. Now I don't rec- rec- you know, necessarily recommend doing that, but it worked for me. It so, worked for me too. I did the same thing. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and that's I, something I that I too. I said, you know, I was like, hon, please just do me a favor. Don't do that. Don't promise work out unless I explicitly agree to this ahead of time. You really, because you're just going to make us both look bad because I may not be able to get to it. So, so it really just comes down to leveling with people, I think. Yep. Yeah, it's an uncomfortable conversation at one point, but people do eventually realize that it's for a good reason. Yep, so exactly. Sweet. Well, hey, we got this next question that came in from Rusty. And Rusty says, hi, guys. Does your experience in making projects really include the steps of letting your milled pieces sit for a period of time before you do finally a final assembly? In other words, all the books I read all state that you should let the wood sit after you do your rough milling so it can move and do what it needs to do before you cut or get it to final size. I don't have a moisture meter, and I buy my lumber rough sawn from my local lumber yard. My projects lately have all been oak and cherry, and it has never been an issue. I plan on making some humidors and boxes, but am wondering if this extra step would be worth it, or is it just one of those recommended steps? Do you guys really do this step? So, Rusty, I've been in the same exact situation. I remember years ago reading a couple of articles, uh, probably ones that you have read also, and thinking, oh my gosh, I'm totally failing myself by not taking this extra step. And then what I discovered is I don't need to take that extra step the vast majority of the time since uh, for myself, where I'm purchasing my lumber from, very, very reputable dealers, I'm familiar with what I'm getting from them. When they say it's kiln dried, I am absolutely confident it is kiln dried to the specifications that they say it's going to be. I will say one thing is because it took me, what, six months to build Aiden's bed. Uh, Occasionally when I do mill some pieces for a project, if I know I'm going to be stepping away for a while, say for like a week or more, sometimes I'll take efforts to maybe restrain the wood so that it's not going to start bowing and twisting because it's completely you know, exposed to whatever's going to happen because who know, knows how long I'm going to be gone and how many seasons are going to change during that time period. <laughs> right. But I will take steps to maybe restrain it a little bit, like weigh it down, put it in some clamps or something. But other than that, I, I don't, I no longer have any need to do what you're describing here because in my experience, it's just, it's just another step that I, I keeps me from getting towards the final end. Yeah. It is tough to implement, I think, especially if you're in a small shop, you have limited time, hobbyist, like weekender, uh, nighttime woodworker. It can be very difficult to restrain yourself and say, I'm just going to mill this partially. Now I'm going to let it sit for a few weeks and just read magazines until right. it's ready to go. It's, a, it's kind of unrealistic. So I think if the wood is um, you know, well-dried and, and fairly seasoned from the lumber yard, you have minimal things to worry about in that situation. So it's like, if you can great, but if not, I honestly don't really do it either. I mean, just my climate, everything's dry. Uh, even from the lumber yard, it's there for, if it's just there for a week or two, um, it'll be fine. And, and I just make sure I mill it evenly on all sides and that tends to keep things stable enough. Yeah. Right. I would say the only time I would ever do this is when I resaw something. Um, yeah. Especially if it's like uh, eight yep. quarter and I cut it in half, but even then, like uh, this table that I just finished building, I resawed an eight quarter piece into um, 
I don't know, about one inch uh, a piece. And then I took my foreplane and I hit both faces of it so that I exposed fresh wood on both faces of the board. Mm -hmm. And I set it aside only because it was late and, you know, then it went into the work week and I didn't really do much with it for about four days. It didn't, it hadn't moved. It hadn't really done anything. And it was kiln dried walnut. Um, nothing special, just your typical wood. Now, I'm pretty certain that had I not done that milling right away, that it might have done a little bit of cupping. Mm-hmm. Just, I mean, we're talking about a 12-inch wide board here that was just sawn in half from eight quarter to one inch. It was probably going to cup, but it didn't at all uh, because awesome. of that little bit of milling. Um, so, you know, that would be really the only time that I really bother. Cool. Good to know. Uh, who's up? Shannon, you're up. Uh, I think that's me. Um, let's see. Alex said that I just bought some wood sold as carabine rosewood, which I think is Chechen. You are correct. That is Chechen. And I paid around $15 a board foot. At that price, I expected to get some pretty nice stuff, but as I started milling it, I noticed it was full of cracks and splits. My solution was to rip it, which I had planned nonetheless, and cut small pieces and glue them together to get something that I could work with. Thankfully, I only needed a little bit for my project, but had I needed a full board, it would have been a complete waste of money. I was wondering if it is a faux pas to bring back such wood to my hardwood dealer or if you had a suggestion to deal with the stuff. Now, um, I really wanted to hit this question not so much because of the specific situation, but just something that I think people need to be aware of with exotic woods. First of all, if you have done any milling of the board, Alex, yes, I think it's a faux pas to bring it back. Um, you know, if you, and yes, those checks may not have shown up until you milled it. So it's like, well, now what do I do? But it's kind of, I don't even want to say it's unspoken. I think it's in the terms and conditions of a lot of lumber yards is the minute you start cutting it, it's yours. (laughs) Um, and, and the only time that I've ever seen that waived is on the wholesale side when somebody bought, you know, a thousand board feet and, Mm -hmm. They started cutting into one and realized it was screwy, and then they were, you know, they submit a claim, and that's usually what happens is it's a claim, not returned. The material just kind of gets written off at that point. Um, if you've started milling something, and especially now that you've cut it into small pieces, um, I, I wouldn't take that back. But even once you started seeing those checks show up, I guarantee you that lumber yard would say, "Well, you know, it's an exotic wood; they're going to do that." Um, and that's what I really want to bring up. First of all, Chechen. Um, Chechen's pretty unstable. Chechen is very dense. It's very, very hard. And usually the denser and harder the wood is, the more prone it is for for checking. I mean, it almost sounds like the name <laughs> Chechen. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it's going to check. It's bound to check. <laughs> but it, this is what, you know, we, we now have the entire world spread out in front of us when it comes to wood. We can choose wood and get wood from all over the country. And sometimes it's it's not a good thing. Um this is this is Caribbean rosewood. It grows in South America and grows in the islands, Honduras and Santo Domingo and things like that. It comes from very, very humid climates that don't have much in the way of seasonal change. And then you bring it into the country that has a lot of seasonal change. You kiln dry it and it's just bound to have problems. It's bound to be unpredictable because that wood is just not meant to be that dry. Uh, when it's kept in country, it's not kiln dried to six to eight percent. You know, if it's kiln dried at all, it's around eighteen percent because of the way the moisture is down there. So a tree that dense and with that much oil and resin and just crap in it to keep it from rotting in that type of tropical climate, it just doesn't do well in a North American temperate zone or European temperate zone. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you can't use it whatsoever. It's kind of just something you got to deal with um, because you're taking something completely out of its element and forcing it into a very, very different element. The only way that you can really deal with that is very, very slow drying over a very long period of time, which in the commercial industry just doesn't happen. People don't have time to put, you know, especially a, a weird species like Chechen, you can't fill up a kiln with it and keep that kiln in production for six to eight months. You know, you got to get it in and out of there in three weeks. Yeah. So it's it's just something that I want people to be aware of. Yes, we have access to this wood, but don't expect it to be, you know, as he said, for, for what I paid for it, I expected it. Well, you paid that because it had to go through customs. <laughs> it had to be cut down in a forest by a dude with an axe that was then hauled out on, you know, I was going to say an elephant, but not in South America. It was hauled out by hand 
onto a truck, which was driven through a bunch of mud holes through the rainy season to a place to be sawn up. Then it was driven through mud holes to a port and loaded on a, on a crate, basically a metal box in the direct sunlight, sat on a ship for four months in direct sunlight in a metal box, which is basically a kiln. And then it was brought into the country and there was a bunch of other stuff that was done to it. So yeah, it's expensive because mm-hmm. it comes from far away and a lot of people have taken their, their piece of the pie from it. But you, you're just asking, you're kind of asking for trouble. And, and maybe that sounds like, what, snooty? Was that the word was used before? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> it sounds snooty we'll to say out. that. We'll find out. Because obviously in a few there days. are things that we can that, that we can use. You know, coca below is used a lot, at least until recently before it became a CITES species. But coca below had a larger market, and its market was in turning blanks, not in lumber. So it was cut down into smaller pieces and dunked in wax. You know, bubinga is a tropical wood that gets used a lot, but bubinga comes from Africa, where it is already a little bit drier. Even the tropical stuff there is very different than the South American stuff. So just because we can have it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good idea. Um, I hope that comes off the right way. That's not waggle my finger and say, why are you buying this exotic stuff? Because you need to in order to keep that market alive. Just don't expect it to act like cherry um, because it's, it's not even close to native to this climate. Right. Well, and all that said, I do actually think it's not a bad idea to call and ask. Now, if you've already cut it up, oh, yeah. don't worry yeah. about it. I mean, but it doesn't hurt to ask. If you skim off the top layer and you go, what the heck is this stuff? I would definitely call them back. I think that's going to vary from lumber yard to lumber yard, what their policies are. But if right. you're a good customer and a frequent customer, they're not going to want you angry with them. And if they've got crap material that you paid 15 bucks a board foot for, um, you've got a little bit of an argument to be made there if it's untouched. Um, if it's all pre-milled and cut or you know cut up ahead of time, forget about it. I don't think they're going to want it anymore. Um, but definitely give it a shot. It's worth a shot. Uh, All right. Next question here we had from Nate. He said, I've recently started down the rabbit hole of woodworking and I'm loving it. I started out with a couple of Anna White projects and because I've seen the Wood Whisperer, I've also made a couple of cutting boards. Who hasn't? I'm now gearing up to design. (laughs) Matt definitely has not. Um, And I also have not made one since then. So um, as uh, much to Nicole's dismay, (laughs) I'm now gearing up to design things on my own and use wood besides dimensional lumber, which I was really excited about until I broke my dominant hand playing ultimate Frisbee. Now, I'm going to take the Shannon route here, and I'm going to tell you why it's dumb to play Ultimate Frisbee, because that's going to be the moral of the story here. Uh, The doctor has told me that it'll be four to six weeks until my hand is out of the cast, and it kills me that my shop will lay dormant for six weeks. I might even shudder, park park a car in the garage. Have any of you uh, ever been in this situation? Is there anything I could do with one and a half hands to uh, keep making sawdust for the next few weeks? Or should I just hand hang up the respirator for the next month and a half and read hybrid woodworking and watch every woodworking YouTube video in existence? Interesting. All right. So uh, I've never really had this other than like a short term injury, just a small cut or something that would prevent me from working efficiently. But um, if you really have your strong hand out of the game, I think it's a safety issue to to do any kind of considerable woodworking. So what I would do with that time, uh, six weeks is quite a while. I mean, depending on your perspective, but for me, that would be a long time. But I would use it as an opportunity, like you're saying, to watch YouTube videos. But um, read some books. There's some fantastic woodworking books out there. And this could almost be like a little... I don't know, like a a research sabbatical of sorts, you know, like where you're going to just take some time apart. Don't have to be worrying about like shop time. Just get some education under your belt so that by the time you get back to the shop, you now can put a lot of that stuff to use and actually uh, improve your woodworking. So for me personally, if I was not 100%, I would just stay out of the shop, not even try to be too productive in there, but really get some education under my belt. And yeah, that includes some good woodworking videos and, and some good DVDs and reading material, whatever you can get your hands on. That's you how can I always play it. the woodworking video game SketchUp too. There you go. That's right. That's I a mean, good one. If you don't know how to use SketchUp, learn how to use it. Yeah, I mean, I, do you, have, you guys have trouble operating a mouse with your non-dominant hand? Um, no. Not especially, no. really thought about that. I, and I've never tried it before. Well, let, but, me, uh, let me try it right now. Let me, oh. let me know how it goes. Oh, we just lost me. Oh, oh, wait, no, there, we did. Matt, there I am. Matt was disconnected. <laughs> Matt just hung up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, actually, I think learning SketchUp would be a great thing, too. That's going to that's gonna benefit you, you know, insanely in terms of designing projects. If you don't already know how to use it, um, getting that skill under your belt would be fantastic. Gosh, yes. Absolutely. Um, all right, Matt, you're up. 
Okay, well, this one comes in from Tom, and Tom says, my basement shop is directly underneath my house bedrooms. Okay, Tom, there's the problem. Move. That's it. Here's your answer to your question. I like this. Actually, he says, any simple, cheap would be good, too, ways to minimize noise transmission. My ceiling clearance isn't great, so I can't do anything that would substantially drop the ceiling height. So, uh, yes, I know this problem very, very well. Thankfully, my current shop, the bedrooms are located far enough away that the noise is not nearly as bad as it was in our, our my previous one. The the biggest thing I learned is, okay, so your ceiling height is too low that you can't really do anything like, say, like a drop ceiling or something along the lines of that. But still, if you could maybe, depending on which bedroom is the absolute worst, do something like put some insulation in the joist. Anything to help kind of fill in those cavities and voids is really going to help to kind of put a layer between you and where the noise is going to be going to. Even... I don't know. Maybe there's enough room that you feel comfortable enough. Perhaps you could put like just some drywall, a really thin drywall on the ceiling joists themselves and uh, help again to isolate the noise, a, a barrier between you and the rest of the house. The main source for your noise is going to be coming from the vibration of the tools. Unless you are like me and you hit your thumb a lot, then it's probably you also. Uh, so something like – if you have stationary tools that absolutely don't move around a lot, try putting like rubber pads underneath the feet of those. You might be surprised at how much less vibration is going into the floor and then, of course, reverberating back up through the house. So that would help out uh, on tools, say, like lathes or any that have, say, an open stand, perhaps weighing them down with like sandbags or anything that, again, that's going to help to really Make it much more heavy. It's going to help to deaden the vibration that's coming off of the tool. Uh, so you you give that a shot. And actually, you may even discover that with some of those tools, your tools might actually work a little bit better because they're not mm-hmm. bouncing all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, another one might be, again, it depends on the tool itself. If it's possible to enclose it in, say, a, a box or, again, something more solid, maybe a more solid stand. Uh, again, to help deaden the vibration, that would really help out. I, I've seen plans where it's stuff like... Oftentimes, your dust collector is probably like one of the loudest tools you have in the shop. I noticed with my table saw, when my dust collector isn't running, it's almost like a whisper. But as soon as I turn on the dust collector, it's super, super loud. Now, I can't put the dust collector in a box, but I can say like my shop vac, you could do something like that as long as there's a little bit of airflow to kind of keep things moving around because it obviously needs air for the suction. Mm -hmm. But still, if you can kind of isolate it and enclose it it's going to help to deaden some of that noise and i even had a cousin once who told me that the way he made his car more quiet was because or what he ended up doing was like stuffing the sheet metal like attaching uh rigid foam insulation to sheet metal bodies so i was thinking perhaps again depending on what tools you have uh somehow adding a layer of say rigid insulation or something attaching it directly to it may actually help, again, to help decrease those vibrations. Now, my last suggestion is simple also. uh, Headphones for the rest of the family or uh, installing white noise production uh, sound equipment would also maybe help. (laughs) You know, and I hesitate to recommend this because it's so old. Wood Talk Online, episode number three, we discussed sound dampening. Oh, I don't. And it is for a basement shop. So I don't know. What'll be fun is to go back and, and compare Matt's advice then to his advice now and see how close he came. Um, <laughs> but it is. I can tell you, I definitely have improved because my family, <laughs> well, maybe they're just deaf now because they listen yeah. to a lot of loud music. Over time, just by default, they uh, aren't so bothered by it. But yeah, Wood Talk Online episode three, I'll put the link in the show notes for, for everyone who wants to go listen to that. It might be painful and I can't be responsible for any information that's in that. There'll be a lot of this. <laughs> chortle, chortle, chortle. <laughs> uh, all right, Shannon, you're up. Did we lose Shannon at some point here? Oh, that must have been the button I pushed with my non-dominant hand. Go away, Shannon. Um, Sorry. I had to mute it for a second because the wife came home and the dog went nuts. Oh, um, better than a, it's better so, than a dog coming home and the wife going nuts. That's true. <laughs> it's happened. Just saying. So this, uh, let's see, this comes from Matt and he says, hi guys, really like the show. Matt, is this you? Um, <laughs> no comment until you give me the answer. All right. <laughs> I'm a new woodworker, and I've been designing some furniture with my brother. We want to put mitered edges around our tabletops, but we don't have a biscuit joiner or money. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> no biscuit joiner wah, or money. Wah. From watching Norm from the New Yankee Workshop, I was only aware of the biscuit method. 
Any other ways to reinforce them? Also, thanks for the safety info about trying to put an ingrain cutting board through a planer. You saved our ribs. Thanks. Mm-hmm. That's good to know. Um, yes, Matt, there are lots of other ways uh, to do this without a biscuit joiner. Now, some of it may depend upon where, you know, how you're actually cutting the miters in the first place. So what tools you have. But the big the first thing that comes to my mind is splines where you're um, either if you if you have a table saw or table saw ish type thing where you can create a, a little sled where you present the miter, the corner to the tabletop and you just run a kerf through that corner and then you insert uh, a piece of uh, scrap wood. You can do it in the same species to hide it or you can do it as a different contrasting species to add a little bit of extra color and, and purdy to it. Um, you can actually run a spline through the miter itself that is more substantial. Um, you can actually hide that by making it a stopped joint. So maybe the spline only shows up on the inside of the joint or uh, sometimes it, uh, uh, it runs all the way through, again, to show a little bit of contrast. So it's, it's entirely up to you. Uh, essentially, the spline method is almost like a, like a loose tenon in some respects. But, uh, you know, miter half laps, that's another one. There are probably more ways that I could think of to strengthen a miter. Um, so I don't know. You guys got anything to add to that? Uh, the only thing that I'll add, and I, I've done this in the past sometimes, it can be a little tricky depending on the wood species, but sometimes you could take a little bit of glue or glue size. So you dilute standard white glue or yellow glue, dilute a little bit with water, and just kind of take a small brush, rub a little bit into the miter, let it dry, and then just very lightly sand that surface. And what that's going to do is kind of pre-seal the wood grain. And I think the problem with miters ultimately, if, if folks don't know, is the fact that it's like almost an end grain cut. So ultimately those two pieces are not together just with glue. It's not like your typical long grain glue bond uh, that's going to hold itself together real well. So by pre-sealing the fibers just a little bit, you can actually strengthen the miter a little bit. Uh, and that when you do add the glue for the final glue up, it tends to grip a little bit better. Now it's again, I don't know how much better, but it's something that I've done in the past seems to work. Okay. But ultimately, I found a miter is only going to be a great miter if it's reinforced to some extent. Because even if they hold together, sometimes you could find over time, they like one lifts up a little bit higher uh, or pushes out just a little bit. Um, so I think it's still a good idea to, to follow any of the advice, you know, Shannon just gave in terms of alternative ways to reinforce it. Yeah, well, and that and that and alignment. Like if you do choose splines, which is basically the same thing as a biscuit joiner, mm-hmm. it holds an alignment while you're gluing the thing up too. Which is it just awesome. makes the glue up easier. Super helpful. What yeah. about like say a, a dowel? Did you mention that I was trying to listen to what Alex was saying, but you kept getting annoyed. Alex was very was, noisy. <laughs> seriously, he was very noisy in the Trim those nails, Sorry about boy. That. <laughs> um yeah, the well, what was the other thing I was gonna say? Um poop on a stick. I forget. I mean, a dowel would work. I mean, dowel. Essentially, we're talking about the same thing here. Yeah, you know, right. a spline or a dowel. They're they're you're taking another piece of wood again. and sticking it across the joint. And and it probably I don't know if he didn't really indicate, but it should go without saying that if you're doing this frame, make sure that you're not framing solid wood. Um, I, I'm surprised yeah. at how often I get that in emails where someone asks me an unrelated question and they show me a picture of something, and I'm like, you. You know, just I don't want to sound like I'm second guessing you, but and I know you didn't ask about this, but is that solid wood inside that frame? And they're like, uh, yeah, why? And so I think a lot of folks don't realize you cannot surround a solid wood panel or tabletop in this case with a mitered frame because uh, right. pretty much no matter what you do, especially if you reinforce it, oh boy, something is going to give over time. It's one of those. I I don't want to be the uh, internet safety police. Oh, wait, this is uh, joinery police. Sorry. (laughs) I want to be the joinery police. Yeah, they're just as bad as the safety police, man. All right, let's get into our iTunes reviews. And uh, if you want to leave us a review on iTunes, you can do that. Just look us up in the iTunes store, click on ratings and reviews, and you can ask Matt for his secret to getting his white so white. Oh, it's easy. Um, Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes, <laughs> it's uh, Sam actually does it. In fact, I was going to say yeah, that's, it's uh, Saturday night. We just sit there in front of TV and she just whitens the living daylights out of them. There you go. Uh, we'd like to thank DW1015, Felio5, Chetkloss and Lord Blitzkrieg, who had this to say. I chose his because I liked his name. Uh, it says Mark's cutting board podcast. Ah, it's brought up again. 
<laughs> originally got me into woodworking and the triumvirate podcasts uh, take my interest to the next level. I really appreciate how accessible they make the craft and find that listening regularly helps uh, helps my momentum in between projects, even if I don't have the time to actually work. Uh, thanks to Matt for responding to my email the same day. He's truly a class act. Subscribe to this podcast now. You'll be hooked. I can't guarantee that the email actually helped, but I did respond as quickly as possible. That's true. He does respond quickly. Can't be responsible for the content of said response. You know, I have speed, a feeling speed Mark... Speed of response is directly related to inaccuracy of the response. <laughs> most times. <laughs> most times. Exact. I have a feeling, you know, I'm just going to put this out there. Not that I'm thinking about this in any way, but I think what's going to be on your tombstone was he showed me how to make a cutting board. Right. <laughs> Launched a, a million cutting boards. Wonderful. Good to be known for something, I guess. Uh, just remember, today's show is sponsored by Festool at FestoolUSA.com. And also get your Wood Talk t-shirts at TWWStore.com, which actually happens to be offline right now because my mom's out of town and I don't feel like packing things up. <laughs> I know it's lazy, but, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Oh, when mom gets in town, make sure you get your t-shirts because they're going to be packed with love and goodness and they're going to make you look awesome. Everyone comes with a chocolate chip cookie. Ooh, I want one now. No, it doesn't. But uh, also, uh, woodtalkshow.com, look in the left-hand column. You'll see that space to uh, where you can donate or do a recurring donation, like I mentioned at the top of the show. And, of course, we always appreciate that kind of support. So, Matt, if you want to give them the contact info, we'll get the heck out of here. All right. Well, hey, my mom's still in town, so I'm going to do the contact information. So if you have comments, questions, or topic suggestions, you have several different ways to contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is WoodTalkOnline. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. You can email us at WoodTalkOnline at gmail.com, where more than likely I will probably respond to the email. Can't guarantee the actual success of what I mentioned. And, of course, you can leave us a comment or WoodTalk... You can leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. And if you're looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or previous episodes, you're going to find those over at woodtalkshow.com. Yeah, baby. It's another show. Woohoo. Feels good. Feels good. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks for uh, listening, everybody. We'll catch you next time. See, See ya. Bye. This podcast is part of the Frog Pants Studios Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there!